All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight will be in Acts chapter 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I think, right? Acts 9, that's what I studied anyway. Um, we put out a couple of Facebook posts and an email and try to let as many people know as possible, but this will be another way of getting it out. We are going to start a couple new things next week. Uh, Monday night, we'll be doing a Q&A, questions and answers, anything that you have about the Bible at 7 p.m. We'll just do that on a weekly basis. So every Monday at 7, I'll just be sitting here and we may stream it, we may not. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is because I really felt like God put it on my heart that as you guys go through your Bible studies at home or do your own personal studies, questions come up. And you could wait till we hit upon that on a Wednesday or a Sunday, or it'd be nice. Like some of you have taken advantage of Messenger and are just messaging me your questions, and then I'm able to read them, and they're in writing. I can get to them when I can get to them. But I thought there might be some other people that might have some, hey, I, I need a quick answer to this. I'm, I'm going through Ezekiel, you know, and of course, I'll look at you and go, I don't know Ezekiel either, you know, um, but I want to make myself available for that. So that'll be on Monday nights at 7 p.m. We're going to try to stream it, but... It's a lot to ask the guys that do, if you can tell, there's a lot that goes on to streaming and getting things online. Um, it could be as simple as me just holding a phone up like this while I'm talking to everybody, which may end up be what it is. I don't know. Um, but we may stream it or, and we may not. depends on how much, how much it's hard to staff that is, is the idea. But that'll be this Monday at 7. And then on Thursday next week at 7 also, um, we're going to start the book Revelation, just do a Revelation study, get through the whole thing. Um, it'll be comprehensive though. So it's going to take a while to get through it. We're not just going to go chapter one, chapter two, we're going to hit Ezekiel, all the, all the prophecies that go along with it. Um, so it's going to be pretty comprehensive. So it'll be an in-depth study on revelation. The reason we're doing that is as Jenny and I, uh, and our family, uh, are watching things unfold around us right now, we're seeing scripture unfold before us. We're seeing things getting prepared for maybe not revelation four yet, but it's coming. Um, and you'll understand that if you come to the study. But we're definitely in two and three, and we're definitely getting leading towards Ezekiel, you know, 37, 38. We're in that area right now. And as we see things getting prepared and set up, um, we get excited about it, Jenny and I do. But there's a lot of people that aren't excited because they don't know. They don't have that background. They don't have that understanding of what Scripture says about the last days and what to look for, and that it's all planned by God and all that. So they don't have that hope that we do. So I want to do this study to at least give you the information you need um, to help you go through those books and to pull all that stuff together because it took us years to pull all that stuff together. And um, we'll try to do that in a shorter amount of time so you don't have to wait years to do um, When I was at uh, Calvary Chapel of uh, Omaha, we had times because they did outreach Bible studies in Nebraska City or in Clorinda. That's how Clorinda Bible study started was through an outreach. And he would take a gang with him, a crew, you know, support team. And I was part of that support team. And we would have an hour and a half in the car with the pastor there and back. And I think about those times, I was trying to think about what God did in my life to help me move forward and to get scripture under my belt and to understand things. And I don't, I didn't realize it, but I had, and, and understand I put myself in that position. So I gleaned a lot that other people who didn't put themselves in that position they didn't get as much as I did, but I got three hours, if not six hours of personal time with the pastor every single week because I made myself a part of the support team and I got to ask questions all the way down and all the way back. He probably was like, leave me alone. I'm like, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? Yeah, I know that, but what about this? He said, mm -hmm. you know, but I had that 
And I want to make sure that I make that, so since we don't do outreach fellowships like that, um, or outreach Bible studies, haven't been asked to do one really, and, and uh, I want to make myself available for that. So that's, that's why those two things are starting next week. So Monday's uh, question and answer, we'll try to stream it. Uh, and then, uh, and then Thursday's Revelation Bible study, as long as well as the other studies that we have. So, a lot of opportunities for um, learning faster, or learning more quickly. All right. Um, also, there's a lot of acorn squash out there. Take some acorn squash. That's not exactly spiritual, but they're going to rot if you don't take them. And you can just cut them in half, and you and you bake them, wrap them in tin foil, and bake them. And you put butter, and you put salt and pepper on them, and they're just mm, really good. So, you're missing out if you don't eat them. All right. Acts chapter 9. Paul gets converted. It's really Saul at this time. And uh, what, a, what a great chapter this is. We, we glean a lot from how God works. He definitely goes outside of, of his um, typical, you know. Um, of course, as far as we've gone through the book of Acts, it's really hard to find a typical way of someone getting saved, you know. Um, this is really interesting how he does this. He bypasses everything. In fact, in, uh, when we get to Galatians, Paul describes in Galatians, as he's writing this letter, saved, years after his conversion, um, to the Galatians, he explains that, man, I learned the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. I didn't receive it from man. I didn't receive it from angels. I received it from Christ himself. And so this, is, this, this moment in chapter 9 is really special. It's really interesting to read. And so in verse 1, then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's our first break here for a minute. Um, Jesus is speaking, and if you have one of those red-letter Bibles, you'll notice those letters are in red because it is Christ meeting him on the road to Damascus. And when he's talking about here, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's, he's really speaking of his persecution of the church. And this is important for us to understand, and we hit on this every time we read this, but that when the church gets persecuted, when you get persecuted for your faith in Jesus, Jesus not only takes it personally, he was there. I don't know that we understand that completely. And uh, I'll do something that I don't normally do, but I am baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. I have the Spirit of Christ in me, as well as all of you who are born-again believers. You have him also. And we know that academically. But right now, the Holy Spirit has given me the gift to teach, and that should be in operation right now, the gift of teaching, which comes from the Holy Spirit. So the teacher tonight, although I'm here, really it's by his gift given to me, he's teaching through me is the idea. Now, I'm not saying I'm the voice of God, never. I know that I can blow it throughout the teaching, and my flesh can show up at any time throughout the teaching, and does at times. And that's your job to figure out when those times are, and when I'm being led of the Spirit. But that's happening right now. So in this room right now, the Holy Spirit is not only in me, but he's in you, and he's very present. He's here. And I don't know if we ever, we, we don't think about that very often. I tried to explain it a little bit earlier, in, in a few weeks ago, when I said that the very fact that you yearn for more of God, the very fact that you desire to know him and to be closer to him is the evidence of your being born again. 
the evidence of you being filled with the Spirit, because that does not come from your flesh. Your flesh doesn't have that ability to say, gosh, I wish I knew God better. That's the Spirit. That's the Spirit crying out within you, I want more, I want more. And we even sing songs like that, you know? I want more of you. Sometimes you don't know how to pray, but you know deep in your heart you're stirred. You call it, you know, maybe you feel worried about something or you're anxious about something or whatever, and there's just something you can't get off your mind. Maybe you're not supposed to get that off your mind. That's probably the Spirit in you desiring to pray. The Bible says that the Spirit groans sometimes within us. The groaning comes from a desire for God to change something or to work or to move in some way. And that's coming from within you and, and, and out towards God. The Holy Spirit prays on your behalf from you to him. He intercedes is the idea. And these are mechanical things that are hard to get our minds around because it's just hard to comprehend this kind of stuff. But I want you to know that whether you understand the mechanics of it or not, the evidence is that. Those experiences that you have is the, is the evidence that that's the Holy Spirit and you crying out for God. So that should bring encouragement in the sense that um, you don't say Abba Father except by the Spirit. The scriptures tell us that. But that also when you get persecuted like Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus truly is very much being persecuted through you. Paul later on says at one point, I, I, I uh, complete or, or, or am a part of the sufferings of Christ. As I suffer, I'm proud of that, Paul says, because I'm partaking in the sufferings of Christ. I'm completing. And it will always bother me when he said that you're completing the sufferings of Christ, like they weren't complete enough. What do you mean, Saul? You know, the, the Pharisee in me is like, wait, that's not, you know, wait, you know, what are you doing? No, he really means that, that. That's why he says, it's, it's beneficial to you that I leave, that the Holy Spirit or the Helper might come, I might send him to you, and you might have him. But that the persecution that I experienced on earth, Jesus was saying, is now the Holy Spirit in you, you'll start to get persecuted just like I did. And to expect that, because that doesn't end until the age of grace ends, and Jesus comes back for judgment. And so all the way until Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19, we should be experiencing that persecution because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's still doing that work. So all that to say, when Jesus reaches down here to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Saul doesn't really know what he's talking about because he's never personally persecuted Jesus himself, but he has persecuted the church. Now, Paul's a smart guy. And I'll toggle between those two names. It's difficult for me to call him Saul. So when I say Paul, I mean Saul. Um, he's a smart guy. He knows what he means. Because his, his response is this. And he said, this is Paul responding, who are you, Lord? Now, right away, he knows you're in charge and I'm not. That's where that Lord comes from. I don't know who you are, but I can't see a thing right now. And I'm down on the ground and you're very powerful, and I can feel your presence, and I understand that you're Lord. Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. What does that mean? That's not something we use. That's not a term we use. Well, goats come in lots of different forms. Sometimes when an ox is yoked to a plow or to a cart of some kind, they'll, they'll either put a bar behind them with prongs on it, not like barbed wire, but probably less, less intrusive, but still 
pain in the rear if you decide not to and you decide to kick back. You know, I'm not pulling this cart. You kick and ow, that kind of hurt. Never mind. You know, pain and absence of pain. It's it's that's how God moves us sometimes. You know. And that's what a goat is. Or if you're pulling a plow, the, the guy could actually have a stick, a, point, a sharp spick, stick, and if they're not pulling, he can just give them a little jab in their hocks there, you know, bam, go, oh, and they'll start moving again. Well, God, Jesus here says, you're persecuting me, and I can see you kicking against me, which tells us a lot about what happened at the stoning of Stephen. That stoning of Stephen, and we hinted on that last week, was very impactful to Saul. He was holding the coats of everybody throwing rocks at this kid. And this kid had the face of an angel. And this kid is looking up saying, don't charge them with this sin. They don't know what they're doing, God. And that, that yoked Paul right there. I think we have to understand Paul's heart. And I, I try to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I really think in the Sanhedrin, in this religious rulers of the day, you've got two groups of guys. And I'm sure there's more than that, but let me, let me just make it two. You got the guys that love the power and the hats and the big clothes and every, all the perks that go along with being a part of the Sanhedrin. And they'll pretend and be as religious as they need to be in order to get all those perks and keep all those perks. Fine. But then you've got these guys that are part of the Sanhedrin that really have a heart for doing what God wants them to do. And they know nothing other than the law. And they know the best thing they can do to be as close to God as possible is to make sure they're fulfilling the law absolutely perfectly. And so they're very zealous. I think that's where Nicodemus comes from. And I think that's where Saul comes from. He comes from that place of, I am going to be the best Pharisee or the best part of the Sanhedrin anybody's ever seen. I'm going to be the most rock solid Jew anybody's ever seen. And I think that's where Paul comes from. Now, when he saw what was happening to Stephen... And he sees what's happening with Christ, and he sees what's happening with this church, the way. This causes jealousy for someone who wants to be ultra-spiritual, who wants to be as close to God as possible. And they're seeing blind people getting healed over here by fishermen who've done no study. They have not put in the labor. They have not put in the work. That's all Paul ever did. Sat at the seat of Gamaliel. It got as much information as he could, and he's standing there watching all this all the beauty around him, and he's not a part of it. And that's got to bother him. But when he sees Stephen die, I believe at that point, he's yoked by the Lord. You want this, don't you, Paul? I do. But the only thing he knows is the law. And so, maybe this is of Satan. Maybe this is all fake. Maybe these works are being done by Beelzebub. That's what some of the other guys have said. I know some prophecies have been fulfilled, but maybe these are false prophecies being fulfilled. And you can just see these things going on in his mind to where I'm going to squash it. He's come to the conclusion the best route to be closer to God is to crush this church, to crush this opposition to what he knows is the way and the path to God. That's his heart. But when you look at Stephen and you see that face of an angel and you see him saying things that people getting stoned don't say, like, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, or don't charge this sin against them. That gets to your heart. He doesn't know what to do with it. And so Jesus calls him on it. You've been persecuting me. No, I thought I was getting close to you. I thought what I was doing was the right thing to do. It's hard to kick against the goads. And he is putting this together. 
So he, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What a great question. I think that's that moment right there for Paul. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing to get closer to you. This isn't right. And I can tell you're super powerful, and this has nothing to do with Satan, because what I'm experiencing right now is not demonic. It's the closeness I've always wanted to have. I'm actually having a conversation, truly, with the heavenly realm. And now I know his name is Jesus. I mean, it's happening for him right now. It's like, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll do anything. I thought I was doing the right thing. He says, I want you to arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Great. Isn't that what we all want? I mean, I think about everybody in this room who truly loves the Lord and wants to get closer to him would love this moment right here. Blind me. I don't care. Just tell me what you want me to do tomorrow or today even or the next thing. Just tell me I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Go over here. I'll do that. I'll go right over there. You know. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. There's a reason for that. Now, there's a guy named Ananias who's going to come and lay hands on him and heal him, and God is going to work on this guy's heart, Ananias, here in a minute. But that's not what's happening. Why the three-day wait? Well, three days is very symbolic, obviously very symbolic of death. It's very symbolic of Jesus being in the grave, rising from the dead. But I think there's a lot of scriptures that you can go through in your mind as Paul was a student of scripture, knew the text inside and out. He's got to be for three days going over things. And so what God wants him to focus on is, I don't want you to, and I'm going to read something. And I'm, the, I'm guessing here, you can throw this out. There's a reason it's three days. There's a reason he's not brought right to Ananias' house. There's a reason there's a delay. There's some time here. I need some alone time with you, Paul. I need you to have your eyes closed for a while. I need you to focus on me. I need you to be helpless. I need you to be reliant on other people. I need you to be broken. God needs us to be broken. That's one of our biggest problems, I think. We're afraid of being broken by the Lord. That's a prayer you can pray. It's a tough prayer to pray, but pray it. God, I want you to break me. I want you to break me. It's our stubbornness. It's our stiff-neckedness. It's our inability to be flexible and to listen and to turn and be guided by him. We have a horse like that named Raider. He's a wonderful horse, sweet spirit. You had to get to know him. When we first got there, one of our neighbors said, yeah, that horse should have been shot a long time ago. And I'm like, oh, great. We got a crazy horse, you know. And he was. I mean, he, he bites all the gals, keeps them in order, you know. <laughs> it's nothing like spirit, like the movie Spirit. or anything like it's not, it's not pleasant at all. He just drives them like a harem wherever he wants them to go. And he's, he looks mean, but he's actually doing his job. He's the boss. He's the one that's going to do the fighting. He's the one that's going to protect him and all that. And you figure that out after a while. Well, he doesn't. You don't ride him, you know. And so uh, I think it was just last week I got on him, you know, put a saddle on him and hopped on him. Just sat there and he just, you know, he's looking out at me at the side of my eye like, what are you doing up there? Like, I don't know what I'm doing up here, but don't do anything stupid, whatever you're doing. <laughs> and he's so, so big that you can't reach 
the hawks or the the withers back here that you're supposed to kick to get him to move. I mean, you can't. I don't have a long enough leg to get back there. He's huge, and he's fat. I think. I think he's just. I think he's just a chubby sedentary bachelor is what he is. <laughs> and so there he is, and I'm I'm kind of kicking him. He's kind of going, you know, <laughs> no. But I get off of him, and I'm rubbing him like I'm supposed to, and you know. And talking to him, and I get to that place now where I can rub him, and he closes his eyes while I'm doing it. I'm like, I got you, you know. All that to say, all of that was to to get him to move for me is going to take a lot of time. We're going to need some understanding. We're going to need some moments together like that where he trusts me and I trust him. It's just going to take time to get there, and I think that's what Paul's got going on right now. He's got this moment right now with the Lord where God's got his full attention. He says, I want you to go over these scriptures in your mind, these things you've been studying, these things you've always remembered, but I want you to think about them as a blind man. So let me read to you some of the scriptures that may be going through Paul's mind that he would know from the Old Testament. Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9. Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. Paul's got to be wondering, what happened to me? How come I could see before? Now I'm blind. And he's thinking about all the things he's heard about this Jesus and all the things he's done and what his, his disciples are doing throughout the world. And it's these things. He's got to make that connection in his mind. This is what those passages mean. He's not like me at all. He's not like I've been exposed to in my religious experience at all. He's, he's this. Isaiah 29, verses 18 through 19. In that day, the deaf shall hear... The words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of the obscurity and out of the darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. We know how many times in the New Testament they're always giving the rich guy the best place in the synagogue, and they're upset about the guy with the withered hand because he's being healed on the Sabbath. Everything that these scriptures talk about were a bother to the religious system. And he's sitting there thinking about this while he's blind. He says, no, that's exactly what he came to do. That's exactly what the Messiah would do. And here I am blind. And here I am blind. And boy, I wish I knew somebody that would want to heal me, Sabbath or not, you know? Isaiah has a lot of them. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Say to those who are fearful or who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like deer, and the tongues of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. That's exactly what he's witnessed. Finally, Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 7. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. 
I just wonder if some of those scriptures weren't coming to his mind because he's sitting there waiting for three days. What else are you going to do? But go over everything that you need to go over in your mind about the passages that talk about being able to see again. It's a huge loss. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, Ananias, okay? So Paul's over here doing his thing. Oh, God, I, I hope this is not my ministry, you know, blind ministry. Now, there was a certain disciple, he's a believer in Jesus, at Damascus named Ananias. Now, how did he get saved? From that scattering. From the havoc that Paul stirred up. Stephen gets killed. The whole church went, oh, we're going to die. They scatter, you know, and they spread the gospel wherever they go. And so here's this Ananias saying, oh boy, glad I'm not in Jerusalem. That Paul's crazy. So this vision comes to this kid. I say vision is a kid because Ananias, it says that your old men will dream dreams and young men will have visions. So he's having a vision. So he's probably a young guy, right? And he said, here am I, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. I love it when God works like that. And he's working like that all the time. Of course, we've, we've brought this up a few times, haven't we, where God puts it on your heart to do something. But remember, he's always been working on the other side as well. This is a perfect example of this and documented for us so we understand that. Paul's praying after he's had an encounter with me that he might receive his sight again. So I've told him that I'm going to bring him a guy named Ananias. That's you. And I want you to go lay hands on him and bring his sight back. It's, it's Saul of Tarsus. So Ananias answered the Lord. Lord, <laughs> I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now he's only bringing that up. He's not saying no, but he is saying, so I've heard a lot about this guy. He's the guy that's putting people in prison, right, for calling on Jesus. And that's the guy you want me to go find and lay hands on because most of the world is hiding from him right now. Most of the Christians are doing that, 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 that little fish symbol in the sand. When they meet each other in the market, they'll do that. If you, you ever see that fish symbol in the back of cars? That's where it comes from. It's at this time they're going like this. And the guy across from it responds and goes, and it makes a fish. We're like, oh, you're a brother in the Lord. I get it. That's what that fish symbol means if you never knew that. Okay? And so right now the whole church is just walking around going, hi, how are you doing? Some guy's going, fine, what's wrong with your foot? Oh, he's not a believer, you know? <laughs> but then the other believers are going, I'm fine, how are you, Bob? Jesus, right? You know? <laughs> and they're getting this. And he's saying, I don't think he's going to respond to my little fish symbol in the sand. It's the first time in the Bible we see the believers called saints. I hope you know that. You're considered a saint. You don't do anything great. You've done it. You've accepted Christ. You've believed on God for your salvation. You believe the one thing that matters in this world is that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And that makes you a saint. You are a saint. Nobody has the authority to give out sainthood to anybody. God does that. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. And so you can put that right there on your, well, whatever you want to put it on. Get a keychain, I guess, or something that says, St. JD, you know. And Well, don't put my name on your keychain, but put your own name there. 
we call each other brothers. We call each other sisters. And that's, that's kind of, that's good. We are. We're also saints. Know that. Anyway, God's response to him in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go for he is, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him of how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, I don't know if that helped him or not. Ananias is like, so you want me to go lay it? Yeah, don't worry. I'm going to tell him all the things he's got to go through. Oh, he's going to suffer? All right. Yeah. <laughs> There's some payback here. We need some payback from you, Lord. Make sure this kid suffers. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's honestly saying, just go get him. I've got a, I've got a big mission for him, and I want you to be a part of it. Now, that's Ananias' part. Ananias doesn't get to be the one to go before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. It's this Saul guy. I think that's very interesting. I think God has chosen Saul because Saul has a passion to be as close to God as possible. I think he has a passion and a zeal, and he has set himself apart and set apart his whole life to be as close to God as possible, and he's demonstrated that. He's just been doing it wrong. Those are the things that God does. He uses people like that. I think about Raul Reese. You know Raul Reese from Diamond Bar, California, Calvary Chapel Diamond Bar. Um. Black belt and karate, and if you don't know his story, they made a whole story, The Switchblade and the, and the Cross. That's a whole movie they made about him and his conversion. Short version of it is, he's a super violent guy, special forces in Vietnam, and super violent, and it just hurt a lot of people. Um, was waiting for his wife to come home, and he was going to shoot her, and while watching television with the gun in his lap, waiting to shoot his wife, evangelist comes on, and he gets saved. He's born again radically transformed but all that radical violence intensity you know black belt multiple level black belts and whatever karate or i don't know what he does i, I don't ever find out I don't, um but just this it, it, he switched it was directed the wrong way it was in the wrong direction but he was just as passionate as he was towards the violence and the evil in his life as he was when he got born again towards god it's a huge church now. He's about the most humble, real guy you've ever met. Nothing like what you see on a lot of TV shows at all. I'll relay a story. One of the, a, a pastor recently um, who, who was on staff with Raul, who did the announcements for the church at Diamond Bar, um, right before he came up to do announcements, Raul grabs a glass of water and throws him right in his crotch on the co- and his khaki pants. As he's get up there. And that's the kind of guy he is. I mean, everybody's like, what? So he's going up there and he's just soaking wet. He goes, I'm here to give announcements. Like, and that's the kind of horse play. He was just laughing at him going, ah, you know. And I say that because nothing changed. He's the same guy as he was, except now he loves God. And instead of throwing water on his buddies at the karate studio, he's throwing water on the pastors and making them embarrassed before they go up in front of the whole crowd. He's just a real guy, you know. That's what Saul's going to be here. Saul recognizes that and says, man, you are insane. Look how you are persecuting. And you think you're doing this? You think it's pleasing to me? No, 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 no. You need to be blind for a while. And we need to talk about this. Now, I like the idea of you telling the world about me, but this isn't it. He takes that time and he gets a hold of Paul. He says he's ready to be given his vision back. Because I've got a mission for him to go, and it's to go to talk to Gentiles, to kings, and the children of Israel, 
for I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, trying to reestablish his authority there at the church, saying, look, I know you guys don't want me to come talk to you anymore, even though I started the church here, but you're embarrassed about me because I have a squeaky voice and I have weepy eyes and you don't think I'm as uh, good an orator as all the other guys you pay to come and beat you up verbally, scripturally. And so he's trying to reestablish his authority. He says, here's what I've gone through. Why don't you ask them what they've gone through? And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. Stripes means whippings, beatings. In prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That's 39 lashes. Five different times he's been through that ordeal. I haven't been through that once. He's been through that five times. And still gets up and preaches the gospel. He says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We talked about that. Anybody been shipwrecked here? None of you have been. But three times? Stay off boats, Paul. You know, get a clue. Walk. Three, three times I've been shipwrecked. A day and a night in the deep. That means he's floating on the wood for nearly 48 hours. And then he just starts describing things that are just off the wall. In journeys, often, I go everywhere. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, just kind of general chaos around me wherever I go. Everybody's trying to hurt me. In perils of false brethren, that'd be the worst. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things. I mean, what's left, but yeah, in case I miss something, and there's a bunch of other stuff, he says. What comes upon me daily, this is the hardest one, my deep concern for all the churches. What are they doing? I wonder who's coming in and teaching after me. I come into a town and I teach and I pour my heart out and I pour scripture out and I leave and I go to the next town. I just wonder who the next guy is. Picking out the seeds and burning up the roots. You know, I worry about the church all the time. I'm praying for them. I have a deep concern for them. That's Paul. Those are the things he's going to suffer. And he was told that ahead of time. Paul doesn't care. I want to be as close to you as possible. I want to do whatever you've called me to do. I'm here to please you, you know. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. All the disciples, you know, at the Damascus are like, is he a plant, you know? Is he a double agent? What, who is this guy? But he stayed there with them. Verse 20. Immediately, immediately, he preached the Christ or Jesus in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who is to destroy those who called upon his name in Jerusalem? Has he come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ or Jesus is the Christ. 
Paul, I thought you had letters. I thought you were going to squash this thing. I know. So did I. It's totally different. He's truly, it's Jesus. He's the guy. He's God. Oh, yeah, right. You had an emotional moment. No, no, no. I'll show you from Scripture. And if anybody could show anybody from Scripture exactly who the Christ was supposed to be and why, I'm sure he went through some of those Scriptures we read tonight. No, 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 no. See, the Messiah is supposed to be doing all this stuff. And Jesus did all that stuff. And he laid it all out for them. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Because that's what they do. When you can't defeat him in an argument. When you can't win, and you don't have the logic, that's what they'll do even today. Just kill him. Get rid of him. It's exactly what they did to Jesus. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Now, of course, the houses were made along the wall, were the wall, actually. So you would have no, you'd have no door to your house that would face out or always come into the interior of the, of the city, and you'd have to walk out the gate or whatever. But your house could be part of the wall. Well, they had windows way up high. They would lower him out of this basket to get him outside of the city, so you'd have to go through. And that's interesting to take note of in the sense that God didn't just have him disappear or be unnoticed as he walked out the gate or there's some tactics here being used. And that's how they got him out, and that's how they got him away. Now, between verses 25 and 26, there's a three-year gap. And we know this from Galatians chapter 1. So if you'll turn there, In your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, I want to read this to you so we understand. Paul is explaining to the Galatians how he got saved, how it all went down, and how it's a little bit different. His story's a little different. We'll start in verse 11. We don't need to read too much. You can read the rest of it if you want. But verse 11 of chapter 1. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me or by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how he heard the gospel. He didn't get it from a person. He got it from the Lord himself. And I believe today God still does that for a fact. I honestly believe that. We've had accounts of missionaries going into jungles to reach unreached people groups and they're believers in Jesus. Like, what happened? Who got here before us? No one. A band of white came through the jungle and taught us. I use that accent because I don't know what they sound like. But it's, you know, not from here. And so they know they knew all about the Christ. And it's like, how did you hear all that? No radios, nothing like that. I mean, these are loincloth, spear-throwing, you know, groups. What happened? He just came and taught us. I think that happened. So that's the answer to the, well, you know, if the whole world's going to hear the gospel, what about, what about the guy in Africa who never hears the gospel and he dies? Is he going to be going to hell? Well, I don't know. You have to ask him. I mean, I, I mean, you have to ask God that question, but I know this, that God can do this right here. So whether I make it there or not, or whether I'm obedient to God, to God or not, or whatever, nobody, I mean, nobody who's knocking, oh, Lord, please send me to Saul of Tarsus. I'd love to share the gospel with him. Nobody's doing that right now. Everybody's running the other direction. And so Jesus steps in and says, I'll tell him. And he does. And Paul recounts that. I didn't learn this from man. That's going to be very important to him because he's going to be in conflict with some of the bigger guys in the church later on. He's going to be in conflict with Peter, of all people, Peter. He's going to come against Peter. But he can come against Peter because he's on equal footing with Peter. I didn't receive the gospel from you or from anybody you taught. I received it from Jesus himself. 
So we're equal here. And I can withstand you to your face. And I can call you a hypocrite when you need to be called a hypocrite because we're equal here. This is going to be very essential for him. For you have heard from my former conduct in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He owns it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That tells me his heart was truly, I want to be the best Jew on the earth, better than anybody. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, which means he's an apostle. Okay. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. And that's how we understand back here that there's a three-year gap between these two verses right there. Now, I think Galatians is a very important book when it comes to grace because Paul teaches the Galatians the grace he received from Jesus Christ, and it's very, very pure. And that's why you'll find in this book of Galatians some very different texts that you wouldn't read anyplace else when he calls out some of the traditions of Judaism and says, look, that's not, we're not doing that anymore. The law has been fulfilled. For you to go back to the law is to renounce Christ. It's to alienate yourself from the Savior who fulfilled the law because he fulfilled the law. And if you're saying you need to fulfill the law, then he didn't. I mean, it goes on and on. That's why Galatians is such an important book to understand God's grace. First of all, he received it from Jesus himself. And there's quite a different take on it from some of the guys you read from Jerusalem. Those big boys who are very much trying to keep that balance between Judaism and Christianity. And you'll see that here in the book of Acts. So anyway, that's some background for you. So there's a gap here. So three years later, verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. (laughs) Guys, you having a Bible study in there? (laughs) Can you see that? It's Saul, (laughs) you know, they don't know he's saved. (sighs) But they were afraid of him, did not believe that he was the disciple. And that tells me a lot about the first century church, too, this, this, this church. Not everybody had discernment. These are born-again believers. And, and if you ever saw Saul, you would, after he gets saved and called Paul, you would think, well, he ought to be glowing by now, and everybody should recognize him. I so wondered to see the work of God in your life. But not every Christian saw the work of God in Saul's life. He's knocking on their door saying, I'm a born-again believer. I've been with Jesus. My story's amazing. Can I come in and talk to you about the Lord? Can we just fellowship together? No way. We don't believe you. What would that have felt like? As a brand new born again believer, zealous to realize they're scared to death of me because of my past. They don't have anything to do with me. God will use that. God will use that in your life too. But that's their response. The church, they didn't all have discernment. They didn't all have words of wisdom and words of knowledge about believing Paul. They actually didn't believe him. And they're wrong in their assessment of Paul. We can be wrong. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Who? Barnabas. Barnabas' ministry is this. 
He takes those guys that say they love Jesus and maybe don't have a great handle on it or ain't the most popular guys in the church, and he comes alongside them as individuals and says, oh, yeah, come on, Paul. Come here, come with me, buddy. I can get you in the door here. You know, secret password. You got to do this. Remember this? You got to do this, Paul. Oh, that's what they were doing, you know. That's Barnabas, son of encouragement. Remember, that's his nickname. Barnabas means son of encouragement. He was the guy that gave the, the land away or the money from the land or whatever to the disciples. And then Ananias and Sapphira tried to match him and lie about it, and they died. Remember, that's, that's this Barnabas. His ministry is, oh, man, they won't let you in. I got you. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. More people trying to kill him. You know, more Jewish people trying to kill Paul. When the brethren found out, they, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Troas. Now, I don't know why Dr. Luke writes these next two verses, and if it has, or this next verse, 31, if it has to do with the fact they got rid of Paul once Paul was gone or whether this is what happened in these areas after Paul left, and we're going to continue to follow Paul, I don't know. But here's what happens after they send him away. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, were edified, and walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Church grew. I don't think that's because Paul left, but he was a hot potato. I mean, he really was. When he shared the gospel, boy, you either believed or you wanted to kill him. That's, the, that's how he preached, you know. No seeker friendly with Paul. He's like, no, he's the Christ. Believe him or you're going to hell. That was his message, you know. Verse 32. Thou came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints that dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Anus or Aeneas who had uh, been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Now, now why Dr. Luke switches gears here, uh, Paul is gone. He's, he's off in Tarsus. He's actually, I think, going to spend another 14 years away. So he had a three-year gap between 25 and 26, and now he's going to be gone for 14 more years. You want to talk about feeling like you've been put on a shelf by the Lord. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to preach the gospel. I want the whole world saved, you know? 14 years he waits for his actual ministry to really kick off and pick up. So, Dr. Luke, who's always amazed at what God does by healing people, begins to give these, couple, these two stories here about this. And Peter said to him, um, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. They glorified God because of it. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. She's a believer, which is translated Dorcas. Um, if you've ever been one of the you know uh, old school churches, they have Dorcas circles or sewing circles. They call them Dorcas circles because she was known for that. Um, and so her name's Tabitha. You can, the names are interchangeable, but this is her. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. A believer. I mean, she's doing everything she's supposed to do. She's doing good works. She just gets sick and dies. And when... Uh, when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. 
When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So she was a sewer, and she made all these neat things for everybody and kept people warm and that kind of thing. Look what she did. Isn't she, what a great heritage she left behind. But Peter, I mean, it doesn't say it, but I don't care about the tunics. I'm caring about, I'm here for Tabitha, you know. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints, there it is again, and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa and with Simon the Tanner. Now, that'll come in um, here in a minute, next, well, not in a minute, next week, um, Simon's at a tanner's house. Now, he's not supposed to be there. It's a lot of dead carcasses and everything. Good Jewish boy wouldn't be there, but that's where he is. He's going to be hungry, and he's going to be on top of a roof. He's waiting for food to be made for him. He's going to get a vision from God, almost exactly like um, what happened here in our story. Um, again, it's just a, a neat connection here. And then that's where we close tonight. I went a little bit long tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful book that's explained. Um, thank you so much for Dr. Luke actually taking the time to explain and to, to document all these things that went down that he thought were important and um, stuck out to him. And this conversion of Saul to Paul was an amazing one, uh, definitely outside of the bounds of what we normally read. Um, God, you had a, a special purpose for, for Paul, a special mission for him. And many of us have been called by you in different ways. Um, not our typical raise our hand if we want to receive Christ or come forward to the altar if you want to receive Christ, but have moments with you, encounters with you, and we thank you for that. Help us to answer the call like Paul did. Um, we really don't want to tell you what our mission is or what our ministry is, and forgive us if we've ever tried to define our ministry first and then tell you what that def definition is. Help us to be just available servants for you to define our ministry for you to equip us and call us to what you want us to do. Not something that we prefer, but something you want us to do. We know that Paul desperately wants to reach his brethren, his countrymen, the Jews, but most of his ministry is to the Gentiles. So God, help us to be open and receptive to whatever you call us to do and to answer that call and to fulfill that call. And make it clear to us, Lord, like you did for Paul. Thank you for him and thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.